Chapter 33, and we've been reading the last book of the Ihya, which is on the what's called the Munjiyat. Ihya Ulum al Din is a massive work that consists of four books or four sections, and each section is divided into 10 sections, so it ends up being a total of 40 sections. The uh, first section is on acts of worship, second section is on interactions, the third section is on the things that destroy a person. And the last section, last 10 books, are on the matters that uh, save a person. Okay, so we call that muhlikat and munjiyat. And in the subject matter of tasawwuf, uh, you break it down into two parts. Muhlikat, the things that destroy you, and munjiyat, the things that save you. Just as in fiqh, you divide it into acts of worship and acts of uh, interactions. Interactions between other people and animals and and things like this. So likewise, the Tasawf is divided into these, these two parts. He then divides each book into 10 respective chapters. So we in these uh, family nights have been reading from the last 10 chapters, the Munjiyat. And we read Tawbah, and we read Steadfastness, and today we're on the chapter of Hope and Fear. So Imam al-Ghazali says, Verily, hope and fear are the two wings with which the near ones soar to every exalted station. Okay, so how do you balance hope and fear when they're opposites? You fear for your sins, about your sins, and you hope in Allah's mercy. So if someone wonders, how, how exactly do I balance between fear and hope? The answer is the fear is about our sins, and the hope is about Allah's mercy. Okay. Nothing leads to the proximity of the merciful and the meadows of the gardens, albeit over vast distances and a heavy task, lined with heartaches and hardships for body and limb, except the existence of hope, and nothing protects from the hellfire, for the fire of hell and painful torment, being lined with desires and wonders, save the snap of the whip. Okay? Now the path to Allah, when we say great distances, what are some of these distances? The distances are in fact the veils of the ego, the distractions of the world, the desires of the nafs, the, desire, the whims of the, of the soul, and the tests, tribulations of other people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns us that we will be tested one with the other. Okay? And there are the whispers of shaitan. So these are all the distance between us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a distance that is ma'nawi. Ma'nawi meaning the opposite of uh, literal. You have, in Arabic, you have a dichotomy of hissan wa ma'na. The hiss is the physical. The ma'na is something that is abstract. Okay? So when we say here these distances and these obstacles, we are talking about the desires of the nafs, the hawa of the nafs. What's the difference between... Uh, Shahawats, desires and whims. Desires are known. The main desires of people are all known. The desires of people are sexual desires, the desire of the stomach, the love of wealth. It's all predictable. So the shahawats of the human being are predictable. Now the shahawats also are beneficial. So the shahawats should not be eliminated. Right? They should not be eliminated, but they should be 
checked. If you did not have sexual desires, then the earth would not populate itself. No one would have kids. If your stomach didn't have desires, you would never eat. Okay, you need to, you you wouldn't survive. If you didn't desire money, okay, and you didn't have a natural inclination for money, then nothing would develop. Okay, you would not have what's called Umran or development of the earth. Okay, so the shahwats, the desires of the of the nafs, they all possess a function. The whims or the hawa of the nafs is not functional. There's no function for the hawa of the nafs. And the hawa of the nafs cannot be predicted. You cannot make a list, just like we just made a list of the desires, and you could clearly see where the absence of these desires would cause the destruction of the human being, and the excess of these desires also cause destruction, and the middle is perfect. While the hawa, the whims, for everyone will, uh, is different and is unpredictable. Okay? And for this reason, the hawa, okay, when it latches onto a person, it makes them do some crazy things. So hawa is very dangerous. And then your next obstacle are the tricks of Iblis. The tricks of Iblis, every single generation and every year they are the same tricks. He has got one book. It's a big book, but he has one book. And it is said that one of the attributes of Sayyidina Yaqub, one of his specialties of Sayyidina Yaqub, was the knowledge of the tricks of shaitan. And the tricks of shaitan do not ever change anymore. They are the same book of tricks. It's like a playbook. Like an NFL playbook, there's no new plays coming into the playbook. It's the same trick okay, of shaitan. So he has these tricks and it is from uh, one of the best works. It's called Talbis Iblis. You need something? Okay, thank you. Talbis Iblis is one of the best uh, books. And that is a book by Ibn al-Jawzi. Ibn al-Jawzi is a massive scholar from Baghdad. He was a Hanbali scholar. And he wrote a book on the tricks of Iblis. How Iblis tricks people. Okay? Uh, there's also a Qadi from Fez. SubhanAllah, his name skips me. But he wrote about the various industries. Like the sewers the uh, butchers, the clothes, uh, the seamsters, the sewers, whatever, the people who make homes. So he actually broke it down by industries and he, uh, he showed the tricks of shaitan in each one. How shaitan leads them astray in each one. Right? Ibn al-Jawzi did about the Muslim groups. How does a shaitan lead astray the jurists? How does he lead astray the hadith scholars? How does he lead astray the sufiyah? How does he lead astray the Kalam scholars, etc., etc.? Okay, so he did all that, and uh, and those books exist on the tricks, of, the various tricks of Iblis. Okay, and then the dunya, the temptations of the dunya, are another uh, set of obstacles that come in the way. And then, lastly, ourselves, we ourselves to one another become obstacles. Mother to son mother and daughter, daughter to father. All of these relationships, they are attached to a different part of your heart. Your love for your wife, for example, is a passionate love. It's not a sympathetic love, it's a passionate love, it's a love with passion. Your love for your baby child is love with sympathy. Your love for your parent is love of honor, right? You honor them, okay? You don't have the same love. They're all different loves. That's why if someone tricks you, and says, who do you love more, your wife or your mom? Right? They're different loves. Your love for your shuyukh, 
uh, a man's love for his madhab is the love of the intellect, right? That that the ideas are beautiful, okay? A man's love for the and the work of an inventor, all right? It's for the quality of the invention, the benefit of the invention. For an artist, it's the love of the eye, okay? So when you say that you love, for example, um, the Virgin Islands, it's a different love than your love of Imam Abu Hanifa, right? So it's, there are all these different loves that a person has. And in these relationships can be fitan, trials and tribulations. And from this, a person must elevate principles over personalities. This is a huge one. It's massive. It's a, one of the ways that shaitan leads people astray is to make them love someone so much that they love them more than their principles. So they therefore start chopping down their principles for the sake of whom they love. And for that reason, the Prophet ﷺ said, أَحْبِبْ حَبِيبَكَ حُبًّا مَا عَسَىٰ أَنْ يَكُونَ عَدُوَّكَ يَوْمًا مَا وَبْغَضْ بَغِيضَكَ بُغْضًا شَيْئًا مَا عَسَىٰ أَنْ يَكُونَ حَبِيبَكَ يَوْمًا مَا Which means, love your loved ones. You're going to love the people that you love, but with a degree of sense. One day, this person may be the reason for you to go astray. He could be your enemy one day, right? And enemy doesn't mean he hates you. Enemy means he's leading you astray. And in Surah Al-Kahf, Sayyidina Al-Khidr saw in the Lawh Al-Mahfuz that the boy was going to be so beloved to his parents, but was also going to be a kafir or astray. And his parents loved him too much. They loved the boy more than they loved even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The three of them would end up in hell. So he then killed that boy and granted them another boy okay, in, in his place. And therefore, the four of them go to paradise because the boy died before he had a chance to commit sins and make kufr. So the boy died innocent because he hadn't reached bulu. He goes to Jannah. The other boy is good. He ends up in Jannah and the parents end up in Jannah. So by losing one, you gain four. By this one act of Al-Khidr, by losing the one child, you went from three in the hellfire to four in paradise. Right? So for this reason, uh, this is one of the reasons that trials and tribulations, you have to look at the bright side. And by the way, you don't always have to look at things objectively. Certain things, if you lose something, you actually shouldn't look at it objectively. If you lose something, the way to calm your or to assuage your loss is to only look at the negative of it, right? To look at the negative. You lost a job, you should not think of the positives anymore. You should only think of all the negatives. You were bidding for a house, you lost the house. You now need to come to assuage yourself. Either way, you lost it. There's no value in an objective assessment of the house or the job or the uh, proposal, marriage proposal. You should only look at the negative. So that you could say, Alhamdulillah, Allah saved me from all this. Rather than looking at the positive and saying, Allah has taken away all this. Right? And if Allah grants you something, right, you should only look at the positive. Don't look at the negative. Okay? Happiness is something that you will. Happiness is a, a, a matter of choice. Happiness is not something that comes to you. If you think, and there are some people who are miserable people. They need this lesson. If you think and imagine that happiness is something that comes to you. Big mistake. You're going to be miserable forever. Rather, happiness is a choice that you make 
And by deciding to be happy, you now start looking at the positives and ignoring the negatives. Well, we have a hadith on this. The Prophet said, never tell me about, do not speak to me about my companions. In other words, don't come and tell me your Sahabi did this, your Sahabi did that. Why? Because I want to go out to them with a pure heart. Okay. So happiness is a choice. Misery, people don't realize, okay, there's extremes where you can't blame anyone, right? Yeah, and for example, the people in Philistine, the people where we just did the food run in the hood in New Brunswick, there's, it's an extreme. But we're talking within the norm of life. Misery is also to a degree a choice, okay? Misery can be a choice. You're choosing to look at the negative of everything, all right? Setting aside the extreme. So in this case, these are the five obstacles. When Imam al-Ghazali says, the path to Allah is filled with obstacles. You can now categorize these obstacles. They will come to you either by nafs, hawa, shaitan, dunya, or ba'dukum liba'd. Alright? These obstacles now are burned. You burn through them. And you fight through them through dhikrillah and through hope. Okay? Through hope and through dhikrillah. Because these obstacles set you back where you don't even realize. We, we might not even be realizing that one of these obstacles has thrown us back we don't even realize it, okay? So the only path is to have a lot of hope, okay? And if a person's hope, he becomes hopeless, Allah Ta'ala has actually helped us with fear. He's helped us with fear. So this mountain, if we're going up a mountain, and as sirat al-mustaqim, the straight path, is not a straight path like this. It's based on the word qama yaqumu. Mustaqim means that the path is like this. The path is like this. It's not like this. It's like this. It's going upwards. At the top of it is Jannah. At the bottom of it is Hellfire. So that if a person loses hope, oh my gosh, I'm so far behind. I have so much this and this and this, that he just gives up. Well, Allah has disallowed you to give up because at the bottom is not, you're not just going to land at the bottom. And you're not going to keep going down. At the bottom is Hellfire. So if you lose hope, then now you have fear. If you've, if you've totally felt that you're never going to get what you, attain what you desire at the very least now, protect yourself. So the mu'min views the hellfire as an aid. It's a support. And imagine now you give someone choices. Now one of the worst things in the world is choices. All right? You give someone choices, you sort of cause an analysis paralysis. Right? There's too many choices. Now you start eliminating choices, or you put a gun to their head, you say, you got 60 seconds to choose. You're doing them a favor, right? So when you eliminate choices, okay, it's actually, it's a favor. So the hellfire becomes a favor to get you to move quickly, right? To eliminate analysis paralysis, to eliminate any sense of uh, that there's no hope. Now you have no choice but to keep moving. So Al-Ghazali is telling us that hope and fear are the two wings. You fear... Uh, the result of your sins and you hope in uh, the mercy of Allah Ta'ala. He says, Verily hope is of the ranks of the travelers, meaning the travelers to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, and of the states of the seekers. The description, and, uh, the description and is referred to as a state as long as it appears and disappears. What is the difference between hal and maqam? Hal and maqam, or state and rank. There's a state and there's a rank. A state 
is that which comes and disappears, comes and goes. But a rank is that which stays. That's the difference between a state and a rank. And therefore, hope and fear are states. Fear, they must be states. They cannot be, they must be oscillating states. They cannot be permanent ranks. If you have permanent hope, you start now relaxing. Right? You start relaxing. Too much hope becomes a problem. You take your pedal off the metal. Right? Your foot off the pedal. And too much fear paralyzes a person. So that the person now, he can't move anymore. He needs to be a little bit looser in order to get the job done. So hope and fear, Al-Ghazali is telling us, they should sway in and out of a person's life. All right? They should sway in and out. And Allah Ta'ala, uh, this is one of the matters where the balance is required and is the mark of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Hallmark of the Prophet. Sayyidina Isa was driven by fear and anger of idolatry. Sayyidina Yahya was driven by mercy. So Sayyidina Isa, he said to Sayyidina Yahya, he came to him and he was upset. He said, the Bani Israel have lost their way. The Mushrikeen, the Romans, have conquered us. Okay? The believers are weak. So why is it that there is calmness on your face and a smile all the time? All right? He says, well, let me ask you first, why is it that you're frowning all the time? He says, because of what I just said. And he said, and what happens when what you just said? He said, I fear the hellfire, right, for our people. He says, well, I'm smiling and I'm relaxed because I'm hoping in maghfirah, forgiveness for our people, right? So both exist. Judgment exists and forgiveness exists. Sayyidina Umar's methodology was one of fear. Fear, harm. Sayyidina Uthman's methodology was hope for rahmah. And there, Sayyidina Ali followed Sayyidina Umar. So when the Khilafah came, that Sayyidina Umar was assassinated by Abu Lu'lu al-Majusi, the people felt that Umar's way is strict, it's tough. And we're tired of being scared. We're tired of being scared of the hellfire. We're tired of being scared of human corruption. Umar feared human corruption more than anything else. The corruptible nature of the human being, Umar feared that more than anything else. And the people all selected or gave the, their opinion of that the rule should go to Sayyidina Uthman. Because Sayyidina Uthman was more hopeful, more uh, uh, full of more gratitude oriented and hopeful of the positive potential of the human being than Umar and Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib. So they chose Sayyidina Uthman. So you see now that the Sahaba and the Anbiya and the Awliya, they fit on a spectrum of fear and hope. They all fit somewhere on the spectrum. Okay? You find that Sayyidina Ibrahim السلام, was full of hope. Sayyidina Musa was full of fear. Sayyidina Harun was full of hope. And who came together? Harun and Musa. And who came together after them? Sulaiman and Dawood. Dawood السلام, was full of fear. Dawood witnessed, and Sayyidina Dawood grew up in a time where the, uh, one of the, tri- the Malachites were destroying the Bani Israel, the believers. The Amalekites were in complete conquest of the Bani Israel, and they had to fight their way back. And Sayyidina Dawood lived a hard life. And so when he took power, it was no nonsense, and he conquered. But his son grew up in luxury, victory, iman. All right? 
the Tawheed was not questioned. The, the Ibad of Allah was not questioned. So he grew up full of hope. So Dawood and Sulaiman are a pair. Sayyidina, Musa, Sayyidina Isa bin Maryam, his uncle is Sayyidina Yahya. Yahya is full of hope. Isa was full of fear. Now Sayyid al-Kawnayn, Sayyidina Muhammad, you notice he did not have a pair. He was alone because he was directly in the middle. And he possessed on his right hand Sayyidina Abu Bakr, who represents the Rahmah of Ibrahim alayhi salam. And he had on his left hand Sayyidina Uthman, uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab, who represents the Shiddah of Musa alayhi salam. And he had in front of him as his representative, he always sent out the beautiful faced Uthman bin Affan, who was of Samaha, of hope. And he had behind him these tough and stern who drew upon the sternness of and the worshipfulness of, of Isa and Nuh السلام, that is Sayyidina Ali. Sayyidina Uthman drew upon the luxury of Sulaiman the uh, merciful, hopeful, thankful luxury of Sayyidina Sulaiman. So around the Prophet وسلم, were Sahaba who were all on the heart as if stamped and molded on the hearts of some of these Anbiya and Rasulullah in front of him. And it is said that the Ahlu Badr, the people of Badr, and likewise the people of uh, the, that fought Jalut with Sayyidina Dawood, Prophet has a hadith, the two greatest groups of people besides the Prophets on the earth were the followers that went with Sayyidina Dawood and passed the tests to fight Goliath. Because we know that the fight against Goliath was basically a march to the death. And on top of that, the, their prophet at the time, who some people say his name was Shamweed, he told them, you're passing a river. Nobody shall drink from the river, except one handful. They said, we're going to fight a war. How could we be thirsty? He said, this is the test from Allah. You have, you're not going to win by yourself. You're going to win by obedience to Allah. Dawood and Israel, Bani Israel were a small band of people. Jalut were, the Amalekites were known to be double the size of the Bani Israel in height and in numbers. And in everything, confidence and military and everything. It was a march to the death. Now we're going to march to death and we come upon this lake and river, a river, and now the prophet of the time, Samuel, is tell, Samuel or Shamweed, is telling us, don't drink. Don't drink from it. They all drank, except very few. Then they went. He told them, if you drink more, go home. Most of them went home. The, the, those remaining were under 1,000. They camped out. Next morning, the sun rises. They saw Jalut and his army filling the horizon. Two-thirds of them, they said, we, have, we don't have sabr for this. First of all, we're exhausted. No food, no water. How are we going to fight these people? Because Allah Ta'ala not, does not give victory to His people by material causes. He gives them by their iman. They're about to witness a miracle. Okay? They need iman to witness that miracle. Okay? So two-thirds of them left. They went home. They just left. They said, there's no way. لا we have no strength, no power. We cannot fight Goliath and his army. Who was left? According to some hadiths, 
313. This is the same number as the Battle of Badr. And it is the same number of messengers amongst prophets. Prophet is a prophet who receives a message. Uh, he receives a law, but he doesn't have to transmit it. A messenger receives the law and he must spread it to everyone. That's the difference between a Rasul and a Nabi. Messenger and Prophet. There are 313 messengers, 124,000 prophets. Okay? So the Prophet said the greatest two groups of, on the face of the earth were the thir 313 with uh, Dawood and 313 at Badr. And each one of them is on the heart of one of the messengers of Allah. Okay? What does it mean on the heart? It means the virtues, the combination, the percentage of the virtues is identical or identical. Okay? And Rasulullah and Ibrahim are the two prophet messengers who are exactly down the middle and even distribution of all the virtues. There is no extreme. Okay? If there was an extreme, then the ummah would go to an extreme. Sayyidina Isa was on, we shouldn't say an extreme, but the, his, his worshipfulness was greater than his worldliness. Okay? Worldliness meaning like his law, his interaction with the world. So how did his people go astray? The Christians. They went astray on monasticism. Right? Musa salam and his message is more balanced towards the law than worshipfulness. The Torah is all rulings. So how did his people go astray? They went astray on the hair splitting in the law. Everything is legal, there's no heart. And the Ummah of Rasulullah in fact, this is not just uh, some kind of nice observation. This is very important. Surah Al-Fatiha describes the extremes. Al-Maghdubi alayhim being the hair splitters of the law. Okay, who have no heart. They practice religion outwardly with no heart, no rahmah. Wadhalin, they're astray. Everything is ibadah, everything is rahmah. Okay, until it's extremes in worship with no sense of right and wrong, no sense of law. Okay, all right. So Allah Taala is asking us in every salah to pray that we avoid these extremes because extremes breed opposite extremes. And why is it that the Prophet ﷺ encouraged ikhtilat between, right, uh, mukhalata, not ikhtilat between genders, but mukhalata of Muslims. So Muslims should, as much as possible, vi visit different masajid, see the ummah, right, be aware of who's out there, okay? Why? Because it gives you the parameters, all right? The mukhalata gives you parameters. Mukhalata means interaction. Interact with other Muslims. So you can see, this group, well, they have their benefit of this, but they have an extreme. And look, look at the children and the youth. Because the children and the youth, if there's a, if there's a uh, pattern amongst the children and the youth, it reflects the error of the adults, of that group. Okay? It reflects the error of that group. So therefore, by constantly looking around and doing mukharata of the Muslims, you see, you can get to know the extremes. What is the middle? It's when you avoid both extremes. And in fact, no one should be scared that, oh man, what is the middle? It's the, uh, what in Christianity they call it the straight and narrow. 
In fact, in Islam, we call it the straight but vast. The extremes are at the edges, right? So if you identify the extremes, you have all of what's in between, which we call balanced. So who is balanced? The one who cannot be identified as extreme. That's it. It's a negative understanding. Negative meaning it's an understanding by not being. Right? By not being. How did Allah Ta'ala describe a Sirat al-Mustaqeem? He said that it's not al-Maghdubi alayhim and it's not dalim. So it's definition by negative. Right? By negating. So that in our Islam, we should not resemble the Yahud. In our hair splitting of the law and our extremism. And I'm not talking about your regular uh, Yahud. I'm talking about drive down south on Route 9 and look at the way the Hasidic Jews live. Or go up north okay, uh, to New York and there are certain parts in Queens where they dominate. Look at the lifestyle of the Hasidic, even the Orthodox. The degree of laws that you have, right? I mean, that's why they breathe, breathe through law school. I mean, the, the religion is a law school. There are so many rules, right? So they excel in matters of language and law. They excel because the religion is that, right? Now, then you go to the monastery. Uh, I mean, we don't even have the uh, uh, monasticism anymore that the Quran condemns. But if you look at elements of the church, it has bred a disease of sexual deviance. Why? Where you prohibited something, trying to be pious in one matter, ended up being, all right, deviant in that matter okay so you notice that inside of every disease or inside of every extreme is its own disease extreme in deviation uh, in uh, uh, asceticism you're extreme in sexual deviation okay so uh, these extremes are not just something that's a nice clever observation it's actually something to be on our mind all the time and Allah Ta'ala our type of uh, uh, you could say cosmology of gender is very similar to this. That some attributes of Allah Ta'ala manifest and are distributed more amongst the males and others are distributed more amongst the females. Okay? And that this perfect balance is why it is said that the throne of Allah shakes when two Muslims divorce. Why is it? Because that child now Okay, according to some of the ulama, the wisdom behind that statement is that it applies when the Muslims, when that couple have children. Because now those children will be deprived of the balance. They're going to have to have custody somewhere. And therefore, the attributes that they absorb will be imbalanced. Okay, they will be imbalanced. Okay, so uh, these are some of the observations that a person looks at. Uh, now, he, he says... What is the sign of hope? Is that it gladdens the heart. And the sign of fear is not that it depresses a person. Fear should not be considered that. Fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala energizes a person to do good and avoid bad. So the fear of people depresses you. If you're afraid of someone, you become strained, upset. But fear of Allah ta'ala motivates you. There's a big difference between taqwa and Khawf, taqwa, fear of Allah Ta'ala or khawf from Allah, it moves you. It's an energizing fear. Unlike fear of a bill that I can't afford. My car is going to get taken away. I'm going to court. Like when you're going to court, you're so fearful, you're like to the point of 
you can't sleep, you can't think, you can't talk on the phone, you can't do anything, right? When you're going to court. If anyone's been to court, there's that type of fear that's there. It's in your stomach, you're just, you're just disgusted by the whole thing, you're nervous, you're upset, okay? But fear of Allah does not do this. Fear of Allah moves you, gets you up. Go, make wudu, pray, learn what's haram, avoid it, make tawbah. This fear of Allah is munashita, right? And not muhabbita. Munashita, it moves you. Muhabbita depresses you. Likewise, the uh, uh, happiness or hope in Allah Ta'ala does not bring out from the person a type of celebratory happiness. So if I tell you, listen, um, you recently had something goes on, you got a bonus from your job because they did well and all of a sudden what we're going to do now is we're paying your car payments. No more car payments for you, right? So what kind of happiness is that? That's the happiness that you want to celebrate. All right, take the food out, right? Get the food out, invite everyone, let's go out to eat. So that is the happiness of the world, okay? Not, nothing wrong with it, but that's the nature of the happiness of the world. The happiness or the hope that enters the heart, when it enters from Allah, it elicits a different reaction, which is shukr. It elicits for you that you want to prostrate your head down. The natural inclination is that you want to make sajda. So this is one way to differentiate between fear of creation and fear of Allah versus hope and happiness of the world and hope and happiness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? So this is how we differentiate between the two. The masters of the hearts know that the world is the garden of the hereafter. The heart is the soil, the iman is the seeds within it, and the acts of worship are the irrigation. Now, we do have something called ahwal, spiritual states. Spiritual states are attained by long sessions of dhikrillah, regular basis. This is the irrigation. If your aqidah is sound, right, and the soil is clean, in other words, your behavior is good, and you're not doing sins, and your, the seed is correct, which is your aqidah, now water it. Water it with dhikrillah. Keep watering it. In the beginning, you see no results because the seed's still underground. The seed is still underground. But keep watering it, keep watering it. One day, it's going to sprout above ground. And when it sprouts above ground, this is something called the, the awakening of a person's state. And it's one of those things that cannot be described. When it occurs, it is as if the sun rose for the first time on your heart. It is uh, something that is very difficult to describe. It's only by experience. And this is why uh, the discussion on it, it becomes very difficult. It must be experienced. So this is uh, the analogy that Al-Ghazali gives of, of the heart. The heart which is veiled by the world and distracted by it, okay, is like salt being poured in the soil or clouds covering the sun or a dam blocking the water. Be careful of anything that distracts you from Allah. Everything could be perfect. But too much ghafla, what we call lahwa al-hadith. And it's all halal, right? And if you look at the life, life of a regular average Muslim today, you got work, you got kids, kids got homework, kids got soccer, 
kids got this, all right? Community function this, community function that, wedding here, wedding there. Uh, where's Allah? It's all halal. Halal, 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 halal. Even good deeds. But not all good deeds are equal. Dhikrullah is different, has a value that sadaqah doesn't have, right? Volunteering doesn't have. Smiling at Muslims doesn't have. So where is dhikrullah? Honestly, and I'm talking about a perfectly halal Muslim way of living. School function, family function, friends function. Where's Allah? No dhikrullah. So what is that now? That is as if now you have everything in the garden. You have the fences, the sun, everything's there, but no water. You just coming and pouring one cup of water five times a day and calling it dhikrullah. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَقِمِ الصَّلَاةَ لِذِكْرِ He meant by this, establish the prayer, right, as kickstarters for dhikrullah. Not the only dhikrullah. Okay. Now when you go to uh, uh, the way the Ottomans establish Salah is like a three-course meal. There is Adhan, Sunnah. Everyone prays Sunnah. Then you wait. Then Iqama, they pray the Fard. No one gets up. Okay? He gives some uh, istighfar and some ayats. Then Tasbih, SubhanAllah, everyone sits. Alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar. Then if it's Fajr or Maghrib or Isha, he recites extra ayats that are Sunnah to recite at that time like the last three from Hashr, or the last three from Baqarah, or Ayatul Kursi. And then he makes a long, a nice dua. Then Sunnah, then you leave. It's a, it's a small, little three-course meal, right? Other, most other things, Salah is a hit-and-run job. Hit-and-run, right? Wait for the Iqama, comes the Iqama, knock out the four rakahs, and go. So where's the benefit? So, Dhikrullah uh, is something that needs to be established and be very careful what Al-Ghazali is telling us here of the type of Muslim life where everything is halal and good but there's no dhikrullah this is not good this is an extreme alright Salatul Maghrib is around the corner and we basically summarized for us uh, summarized Al-Ghazali on fear and hope so we can open it up now for any comments or questions this book is called Mukhtasar Ihya Ulum al-Din and he himself, uh, Imam al-Ghazali himself summarized his own book. This is English, yep. Yeah. We have one copy left. All right, she's reserved it. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. All right. He was, according to the strongest opinion, a prophet who had the right to act on what he saw from Loh al-Mahfud. Now, the, a lot of people say he was a wali. But the problem with that is that if he was a wali, he should follow a messenger that was Musa, right? And this was haram in the sharia of Musa to kill. Al-Khadr alayhi salam would have been haram. All the three things that he did, two of them were haram, right, to do. So for the dominant opinion is that he was a messenger, a prophet himself, that had his own law, that followed his own law. And in that law, it stated whatever he saw on the Loh al-Mahfuz of the future, he could act to stop it. So 
when he broke the ship, there was a king that was going to take the, sh the ship, a pirate, that was taking the ship next day. He was taking ships. So by breaking it, he caused them to stay docked for a week or a couple days so that the pirate would pass by. So they lost one day of work or a few days of work rather than losing the whole ship. So that's a dominant opinion of Qadr. Ahmed, can you give me the phone in case uh, I could just read him from there? Any questions? Who else has anything? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, um, they're in the books. That the question is on the Sahaba would read, and some of the Salaf and the Salihin and the Awliya, when they would come upon an ayah of he fear and hope, they would repeat it. Okay, and if you come upon an ayah of fear, it is inappropriate to have a jestful expression, right? It's inappropriate. For example, you don't have to cry and force your, but it's inappropriate to have a light expression, right? Uh, one of the ayats that some of the said, if I can't remember who it was, he used to constantly repeat is, سَيَجْعَلُ لَهُمُ الرَّحْمَنُ That Allah Ta'ala will give love to those who are pious. And he kept repeating that to, to, to drive himself, to motivate himself. To keep doing more. Yeah. All right. This question says, in Surah Maryam, when it speaks about abandoning the prayer and following desires, could it be related to too much hope and love and not fearing Allah? It, 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 yes. This is one of the things that happens to successful nations, is that they begin to believe that their success is a result of who they are, not what they did. Success is always a result of actions, not identities. So Allah Ta'ala speaks of people who they, they had too much reward. So they ran after the rewards and left their deen. When, when it says it means they left their deen completely, like abandoned the deen. The word salah is oftentimes a signifier for the whole religion. Okay. Another one says, I think that's one thing in this day that downplays the importance of proper ibadah, yes. Uh, proper ibadah is something that there's no outward value to it. Like there's, you can't sort of show it outwardly, right? So that's why we tend to look for something that I could dis put on display. My efforts put on display something else. But uh, we should know that ibadah is, is essential, okay? Remove anxiety, remove and it brings barakah. Alright, uh, so he's saying those who run youth clubs, retreats, activities, focus a lot on having the youth in a good environment, but not much on teaching them how to do ibadah. Alright. Uh, how do we strike a balance? Well, I mean, this, to strike a balance is going to start with the salah. Salah, we don't just get up and run. You have ayat al-kursi, you have sunnah, before and after, you have tasbih. So I would start with Salah. Salah is the pillar around which our ibadah lies. And then our ibadat is also going to be taraweeh, reviving these ibadat. 
someone says, what is the easy high impact dhikr to start with consistently? And of course that is la ilaha illallah. Beginning of dhikr and the end is always la ilaha illallah. Sayyidina, the dhikr of Sayyidina Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was la ilaha illallah. Constantly he was upon la ilaha illallah. Alright, anything else before Salat al-Maghrib? Yes. The companions of Sayyidina Dawood, they were like the, um, they were military men. They worshipped and fasted like their prophet and leader Dawood, but they were military men, soldiers. Yeah, he, he, Sayyidina Dawood was very tough. He was raised in a tough environment. He was banished by Saul or Talut. He was banished. So he lived many years just in the mountains of, in, of Palestine by himself. And there he received the Zabur and recited, would recite it all day. And then uh, he would do a khatam every day of the Zabur. And when he came back, he established a type of uh, military where he was a type of no-nonsense. Not, he was not a soft prophet. He was a stern prophet. And that military got results. His description is stern like Ali. He's stern like Sayyidina Ali. Like Sayyidina Ali was rational and stern. Sayyidina Omar was emotional. Sayyidina Omar is very emotional. If you look at his emotions swinging all the time, but on, by design. He would weep when he saw the elderly women that their husbands died, their sons died in the wars. He would weep and weep and weep and then cook for them and spend all night until Fajr cooking for them. He was emotional. The Prophet ﷺ taught him how to control this huge ball of emotion that he had that would, I mean, look at his conversion story. The beginning of the day, he was going to kill the Prophet. End of the day, he's killing for the Prophet, right? He's fighting for the Prophet ﷺ. But the Prophet taught him to control this emotion. That not to kill the emotion, to control it.